Welcome to Way Too Seriously, the podcast where we watch kids' movies and then take them way too seriously. I'm Paul Moffat. I'm Jan Moffat. And this week we watched and we'll be talking about Up. Jan, do you want to tell us a little bit about this movie? It is a 2009 movie written by Bob Peterson and Pete Dector, directed by Pete Dector. Dector? D-O-C-T-E-R. How would you pronounce that? Doctor. Pete Doctor. 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 I think Pete Doctor's behind uh, Inside Out also. I think so. It says by Tom McCarthy, so he was in there too as well. It stars Ed Asner, Christopher Plummer, Jordan Nagai, and is... Why don't you tell us a little bit about the plot, Paul? So, uh, Up is a movie about the main character is Carl Fredrickson. He's an old man who attaches a bunch of helium balloons to his house and they carry him away to Paradise Falls, South America, where he and stowaway young boy Russell try to drag his house to the location of his dreams. Meanwhile, they are hampered by the villainous Charles Muntz and his team of talking dogs, and they are joined by a rascally bird who is seeking food for her family. That's the story of Up. That's pretty much the story of Up, (laughs) yeah. So we've seen this movie roughly, how many times would you say you've seen it? I've seen it at least four times. I was going to estimate five or six for me, maybe even ten. I don't think I've seen it ten times. But I feel like we should start our discussion of this movie, uh, well, I don't know. Usually what we do is we start with a quality gauge and then we start delving into the deeper concepts. Yep, absolutely. I'm going to say, as a opening gambit on the discussion of the quality of this movie, Pixar is extremely reliable as a producer of very high quality animated movies. Absolutely. I think Up is high up. Uh, on there. <laughs> it's a very high up. In my personal list of Pixar movies, Up is near the top and does some different things from some other Pixar movies. But one of the things that I, in terms of my enjoyment of a movie, one of the things I'm looking for is emotional engagement. Mm-hmm. And I think Up is not only the best Pixar movie in terms of making me, of hooking me emotionally. It's one of the best movies, period. Yeah. I think we talked a little bit bit about that when we talked about Inside Out, about how much we love Pixar and how much Inside Out is one of my top favorites. But I think Up is is better in terms of what you say, the emotional engagement. And I mean, like, we just have to talk about that prologue. Let's just start by talking about that prologue. Yeah. Basically, I think for a Pixar movie, we can kind of skip the quality. Pixar makes good movies. I mean, some of them aren't as good. We don't, we have, we've had some ones we've watched that we haven't liked as much. True. Okay. So, in terms of quality, everything about this movie is high quality making. Like, your your taste may vary, but ev- all the craft going into this movie is extremely high quality. Absolutely. I mean, like, the animation of all those balloons is unbelievable. You think about the leaps and bounds that animation has grown, and this was 2009. This was almost 10 years ago, and, like... This is fantastic in so many ways. And then to see what other movies we've watched lately, like a while ago we watched Hoodwinked and it looked 
the animation on that was just so terrible. And then I watched this and I'm like, they rendered each and every balloon, each and every one. And it's like millions of balloons. I'm sure they have a count. I think I've read somewhere that they have a count. I have no doubt that they do. Anyway, that's just a small fraction of like what this, what they do at Pixar and what they're doing in this movie. And what I was thinking in terms of animation was not even that, but the character design, the way that Carl is so square. Mm-hmm. He's got a square head. His whole body is a square. His, fingers his are glasses square. are square. His fingers are square. And there's, we could and m- might want to immediately dig into this symbolic meaning of that, but maybe let's not. Mm-hmm. Let's do what you were going to say and talk about that yes, prologue. Let's talk about that prologue. I mean, this is, in my opinion, the best part of that movie is this prologue where he and his wife, Ellie, meet his children. She is overbearing and talkative and hilarious and he is quiet and then it just shows this whole montage of their life together of their dream of travel and their and everyday life and how everyday life just happens and you end up not doing those big huge dreams because you spend your money on getting your car fixed and fixing your house and doing all the regular everyday things that you do with your life and i'm going to try and not cry on our podcast because despite seeing this movie so many times i bawl i cry like a baby every single time i watch this prologue and so does paul (laughs) i think we both were weeping by the time they were married yeah like by the time it was showing them being married we were both misty yeah by the time they uh can't have children we were both crying tears yeah. So, I mean, I mean, and that's the reason that I was crying before as they got married is because I knew it was coming. I knew that this was the story. And what I love so much about it and what makes me cry so much about it is I can see myself in it so much is that like we're a married couple. We've been married for almost 13 years now and we have lucky 13. Wait, have you, is it 13 or is it 14 this summer? Do you not know how long we've been married, Jan? <laughs> Do you know? I'm not going to answer that question. I'm offended by it. You don't remember either, do you? I am in a huff right now. (laughs) Yeah, you don't remember either. Anyway, a bunch of years we've been married and we know what that's like. That like, we would love to go and travel and do this and that. But like, we got kids in school who need instruments and life. And we need to, you know, pay for repairs on our car and pay to visit to travel to see family. And all these things are kind of more important. Anyway, sorry, I'm getting off topic. You're getting a little because Because I'm totally with you, but let's take a moment and say, talk about, I think, why that opening is so good from a little bit of a critical perspective, because it's, it's moving. It's emotionally moving. Why is it? I feel like not only is that the best portion of Up, it's the best portion of most movies. Like, I can't think of very many. I can think of maybe one or two that I'm not going to name right now that are in the running. Kind of six-minute sections of a movie that are, I think, that good. Mm -hmm. And what makes it so good is that it's emotionally engaging. And what makes it so emotionally engaging is that it's so true. It's so connected to the theme of the entire movie. Mm -hmm, Everything that happens in the movie is a commentary on that first six minutes yeah. on the, on, in terms of character and Carl and what his, uh, what he is feeling through the entire movie. If you missed that, if you missed that prologue, 
Up is still an entertaining movie, but Carl's emotional depth is so rooted in that beginning and yes. it makes it adds so much pathos to his life absolutely and to his motivation and what he's doing and it's also all the themes of the movie are right there in that beginning mm-hmm. so i mean what makes that opening so good what makes it so emotionally effective because are you asking me or are you going <clears throat> to launch into why you think i'm, I'm if you want to jump in jump in well i think it's the it's the perfect spacing of the scenes to me. It's the perfect, like, showing them as children and then immediately jumping to them getting married. You know what's happened. Jumping from them getting married to painting a nursery and looking at clouds together. You know exactly what's happened. Jumping from the nursery to a doctor's office. You know what's happened. Yeah. It's completely economical storytelling. Yes. Every single shot is narratively emotionally thematically important Mm -hmm, absolutely there's not a wasted second you said that one of the things that you were crying during the wedding scene because uh you knew what was happening what was going to happen next obviously that's part of it i feel like i was moved at that wedding scene even just based on what it was because like he's this uh he's this Quiet kid. Quiet kid. And she's this, you know, bombastic kid. And they find each other and they bond over this shared interest. And then they bond in increasing ways. And they find, I like, you know, yeah. call me a sap. Yeah. Uh, You're a sap. I love, tr- I like true love. Yeah. I believe in true love. I don't believe in love at first sight. I don't believe in, uh, you know, fated soulmates, but I do believe in two people loving each other, choosing to love each other, and uh, growing in love over their life. And hey, hey me too. Let's get married. Okay. <laughs> and I feel like, you know, the fact that she, the tragedies of that story, even aside, there is something extremely moving about people meet and they fall in love and they have a life together. Yeah. That's moving, and they do it in a moving way. So that's one, right? And it's also moving when one of the partners dies. And that's sad to anyone watching that, to know, to have that feeling of loving someone for an entire life, and then they're gone. And that's what happens. And that's two, right? That's the second. All the pathos, there's a lot of moving. There's a lot moving in this opening because of how it's, because of desire, that is, the desire for love, the desire for companionship, the desire that we feel vicariously on their behalves. We want them to be happy together, and then we see them build a life together, and that is moving. And then there's the second layer, right, of the pathos. We feel, therefore, all their sadness on their behalf as well as on our own. Yeah. We associate, we are emotionally connected to them. There's, when I'm teaching literature, I talk about psychic distance. That is the distance between what a character feels and what the reader is supposed to feel. So uh, there's ways that authors can make it so that you're judging what the reader is doing. And there's ways the authors can make it so that you're feeling what the reader is feeling. This is a movie where there's no psychic distance between Ellie 
between Carl and Ellie and the viewers. Yeah. We are right with them and feeling what they feel. And there's all kinds of techniques of how they do that, partly showing them as children, partly close-ups on, mm-hmm, on their faces. Their faces and on details. And then there's like the pathos of not only of her death and oh, it's so good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I feel like we're gonna talk forever just about this like first opening scene. I mean, there's a lot to talk about because it's so much more moving and emotionally effective because they're old. Mm. Right? Yeah. Because it's making a commentary, it's making several commentaries on life and love and loss. Uh, are we moving already into the way too seriously? I think we are a little bit. Just of this opening section. Just of this opening section. Because one of the things I think that is going on there is showing someone who dies young is tragic in a specific way. Mm-hmm. And you, what you are called upon to feel is what a waste, what a sad specific instance, what a like, if only things had been different. Showing someone who dies when they're old, but make, but you still feel that loss so strongly is a commentary on the nature of loss in general. Mm, you have yeah. a full happy life and, and at the die. end of it, you die and it is still tragic. Yeah. That's a much more profound and therefore much more emotionally real statement. Not that the death of young people isn't emotionally real. Of course it is. But this in, is what yeah, the in common fiction. in fiction in fiction, in nonfiction. Yeah. The, I just mean in fiction, you often go with the young person dying to emotionally trigger people. Right. When this doesn't go for that, this goes for the overarching theme of death. The overarching, like, none of us gets out of this this uh, this life alive. And that's sad. Yeah. And that's always sad. And it's always sad. And it's so easy to be emotionally manipulative instead of emotionally genuine. Mm-hmm. And what's emotionally genuine is all death is always tragic. And that means that the emotional hook that it gets you with is you mourn for Ellie on Carl's behalf and you mourn for the concept of death, right? You're not sad only that this man lost his wife. You are sad that anybody loses their anything ever, mm. right? And that is the, like, <laughs> you hear me? Yeah. Because the specifics are what make the general work, right? Mm-hmm. And so, because, I mean, because you're sad that this person lost his wife, it allows you to really feel the truth that anyone ever loses their anything. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We need to move on past the introduction. We do. And into, <clears throat> into the bulk of the movie, which includes the famous scene of the balloons and going off to Venezuela and Russell. He has plane tickets for Venezuela, but is Paradise Falls actually in Venezuela? They only just say South America. I don't know if they specifically say that in the movie, but Paradise Falls is, like, that okay. was all based on Venezuela. Okay. And Angel Falls is Venezuela. Yeah, that so, I knew. Yeah. Okay, anyway. Um, Do you want to talk about Russell? Yeah, go. I mean, if we're going to take things way too seriously, which 
that's the name of the podcast. We do that here. Russell is clearly drawn as Asian. And so that's representation in last week we talked about Hook and how Rufio is Asian and there's no comment on it. And hey, look, it's actually an up too. Yeah. And I think I said last week that Rufio was the only example I could ever think of of an Asian main character without it being plot relevant that he was Asian. And hey, look, there's one other example. It came right next. It, it <laughs> was we'll, next. Maybe we'll find more and we'll be impressed, but I doubt it. I doubt it. <laughs> so, I mean, I give, I give them major credit for that. Yeah. Because there's no reason. Uh, you get extra credit for representation that isn't plot necessary, right? Because having your... I mean, the worst kind of representation that is still better than nothing is a cliche. So your Kung Fu master being Chinese is better than your Kung Fu master being white. Yes. But barely. (laughs) Yeah. Better is if, like, better than that is you, your Asian character, uh, isn't a stereotype, but it's plot relevant that he's or she is, or a person of color in any way, mm-hmm. a minority in any way. But best of all is representation when people are allowed to just be people. He's yeah. just a kid who is a kid. And, you know, why make him Asian? Because why not? Why would white be the generic? It is the generic in 99.9% of uh, North American film. Yeah. And so it is the generic. You can't any you can't pretend it isn't as a filmmaker. But so we give them credit. Absolutely. They get credit for that. They uh don't get credit for this movie does not even come close to passing the Bechdel test. There is one named female character who is Ellie <laughs> and she dies in the first. If you want to be really technical about it, Kevin the Bird is also... Yes, I was going to mention that. I was okay. getting to that. That Kevin the Bird is <laughs> is female. However, Kevin is a bird as an animal <laughs> character. Yeah. And does not talk. Yeah. Um, Russell's mom is there and has literally no lines. She applauds from the audience. Yep. When, like, that is a little bit of something that bothers me about this movie is that Russell spends a lot of it talking about his absent father. And it's upsetting and it's about him finding a father figure in Carl and that's sweet and wonderful. But there's also when it comes to this ceremony of like, you have to have a father pin on your badge while your mom watches from the audience or whatever. So many children don't have a father or don't have a mother or don't have whatever. And like, why can't the parent who is there be up there pinning it on? Why does it have to be? He goes out and finds a new father figure to pin it on. Yeah. And that's important for the movie, but I do feel like, why wasn't his mom up there with him? Yeah. And in terms of the emotional truth of the movie, it's important that Russell is missing his father because his father is who Carl is replacing. Mm -hmm. But there's a, there, there's a really obvious, in a literal rather than emotional sense, there's a really obvious uh, weirdness to the fact that his mother isn't the one on stage putting a pin on him. It's some stranger. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and 
as a mother, if my, like, whatever, 10-year-old disappeared for three days, <laughs> I would not be okay with the... The guy, guy he disappeared the with? The guy he disappeared with becoming his <laughs> new father figure. But that's maybe a little too much realism in my Maybe fiction. a little bit. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot. We should say about this movie is, I think, more than usually ignoring what is factually true for the purpose of emotional truth. Yeah. Like, obviously, you can't, I mean, you can't sail a house with balloons, but, like, you can't make it to... But you also can't get to South America in a day. Like, they basically get there the same day. It's a lot of bending... I mean, also, the age of Charles Muntz, who was an adult when Carl was a child, and now Carl is, like, 70, 80 years old. Yeah. So, like, there's just a lot of bending of reality, and that's fine. And I think it's the fantasy. major one... Like, you, you skated past it, but the major one is the premise of the movie, right? Attaching a bunch of balloons so that your house floats away. They seed that beautifully in the little montage when his balloon cart keeps floating away his job is like a balloon cart salesman yeah and his balloon cart floats away and he holds it down but you can't really do that but it feels like you could and it represents him you know pulling his past out from the mundane world that it exists in and floating it off to somewhere uh adventurous and amazing and reinterpreting for himself what his past has been and that's why it has to be his house and balloons because it goes up into the world of imagination and that's Mm -hmm. why someone when we tweeted that we were reading this when we tweeted that we were watching this someone uh asked if we'd seen the fan theory on this movie and uh what's the theory well i haven't seen it oh but i assume (laughs) you assume (laughs) <laughs> well, I assume that it is something like Carl has a stroke early in the movie, only the montage is real and the rest is a fantasy. Mm. Maybe it's not, but I assume it's something like that because it's, you know, the thing that make that it makes sense of some of the facts, but it also wouldn't matter because it doesn't matter whether he's a lot like what we see is what's important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the story is what's important and the emotional truth of the story is what's important. Yeah. And the emotional truth is that he finds that he can live without her. Exactly. He can find a new life. He basically, I mean, if Russell hadn't appeared, he was going off to die. Like yeah. He had no provisions. He was taking his house to this place to die. My goodness, this is not a children's movie. <laughs> <laughs> Our kids wanted to see it. And like they've seen it a couple of times and they like it. But man, it is about death and it is about loss and being elderly yeah and actually no it is good that it's a kids movie too because kids need to see that when you get old your life doesn't stop and it's important to have that representation actually and this is one of the things i was saying about the how the montage at the beginning is uh so important to the depth and the emotional depth of the character is For the rest of the movie, most of what we see of Carl is that he's a grumpy old man. Mm -hmm. And there is some depth depth to him. And he, you know, grows as a character from being grumpy to being heroic. And he bonds with Russell. And all of that is wonderful to see. Yeah. But when we have that bit at the beginning, it's like, hey, did you know old people are people? Mm Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Did you know that grumpy people 
that grumpy old people aren't just holding on to the past because they're grumpy and it's not like things used to be in their day. They're holding on to things that they love and care about and have no way of regaining. Mm-hmm. And this is a a um a phrase that John Hodgman on uh Judge John Hodgman podcast throws away flippantly that nostalgia is the most toxic emotion. Um nostalgia is the most toxic impulse. I suspect that John Hodgman actually has a deeper understanding of that than he says flippantly, mm-hmm. but this is a movie that recognizes that nostalgia is a toxic impulse, but still takes it extremely seriously and recognizes how mm. meaningful, emo- like how difficult it is to let go of and not difficult because you are rooted in a past that's dead and how dare you, but because these things mattered to you. Yes, exactly. And there's also, I, I was thinking of, we talked about Hook recently. Mm-hmm. And in Hook, they have the throwaway line, like, life was the greatest adventure. This is a movie that takes that idea seriously. Yes, absolutely. If life is a great adventure, what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. And that means that the part of their life that we montaged through really was an adventure that was worth living. And was worth living enough that you don't have to be mired in it anymore. Mm-hmm. You can have had that adventure and continue. (sighs) This is a great movie. It's so good. I mean, I'm going to tell the story about our friends who, uh, we have friends of ours who in their mid forties watched up in the theaters. And afterwards they decided to move across the country to a place they visited once and loved because they realized upon watching this, that this was their time. This was the time to do the things that that if they just sat and stayed in the city that they'd always been in, they would end up like Carl and Ellie. And so they moved to where we live now, this beautiful ocean side country with, with whales and icebergs and beautiful things. And when they told us that story, they said that, you know, a lot of their friends laughed at them and stuff for a kid's movie having such an impact. And we immediately were like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I can completely 100% see that you would see up and then move across the country. Yeah, for sure. Like, it has such an impact, that story. However, I think that it also has the opposite impact. That You can also, I think, legitimately watch up and say, you know what? I don't need to move across the country. My life with you is an adventure or my life without you or my life. Yeah. Like Russell even has a line. That's like, it's the ordinary parts that I remember. That might sound boring, but I think the boring stuff is the stuff I remember the most. And I know from, I mean, we all know from our childhoods and from our past that you don't necessarily remember the big trip to wherever to Disney world and to, you remember the little things, the little moments, and that's what's important. And I think that's, yeah, that's the conclusion that Carl comes to at the end is it's the little things. It's the fact that he spent his life with her and it didn't matter that they didn't go. I was about six and my family went to Disney World and there's pictures of it and I have vague memories of it. But what I, I was also about six and I was sitting on the curb 
and there was cars going by, and one of them had only one headlight. And my sister said, tiddlywinks. <laughs> right? That's something I remember. Interesting story. <laughs> it's not at all an interesting story. And that's the point, right? Yeah. That, like, I don't really remember going to Disney World, but I remember sitting at dusk with my sister watching cars going by, which is yeah. literally the same story that Russell tells, watching cars yeah, go by. absolutely. But, like, it's the most boring story, but it's something I remember, and it's a fond just us sitting together, being happy together mm -hmm. as kids. I think this is the most different episode we've ever recorded of this. <laughs> because we're not talking about the problematics. No. We're talking about the... There are there some are problematics. Few, there are a few problematics. I do want to bring up one, maybe if we're talking about that. Go. Carl uses a cane mm -hmm. throughout almost the entire movie. Mm -hmm. And that shows a disability. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly, when he emotionally needs it, he does not use his cane. Mm -hmm. He suddenly emotionally is fine without it and you go mm, don't that's some ableist crap but jan don't you know that if people really wanted to they would all be able-bodied of course <laughs> all you need to get out of that wheelchair or cane or you know sufficient motivation sufficient motive if you really want to you can climb that rope lift that kryptonite mountain walk without that cane uh, yeah. you've just been lazy, my friends. Of course you're being sarcastic. Of course just, I am. Just, just to be clear so to all it's of our clear. audience here, that's some ableist garbage it where is. you say that you have to just want it hard enough not to need your cane. He still needs his cane because he cannot walk without it or he has trouble walking without it. So, And if he didn't need it, he wouldn't have it in the first place. Exactly. So yeah. to have him just throw it away and literally even in the last... The last scene, This is, I paid special attention this time because I'd noticed it in the past. In the last scene where he comes and pins the thing on Russell, comes up behind him on stage, he does not have his cane. So he doesn't, it's not like he just loses it in the action and doesn't need it for that like fight scene or whatever. <laughs> he actually loses it for the rest of the movie. And I think that's a mistake. Yeah, and I think that's an example of perhaps we could make an argument that there is an emotional truth to the fact that he's leaning on the past or something, but I think that's a stretch. Yeah. I think that... It's a mistake. It's a mistake. You can still need a cane and be emotionally fulfilled, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. And the subtext of him losing his cane is that you can't. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that matters. Yeah. The We talked about... We didn't go into it. I don't know that we need to, but... Uh, Everyone's male in this movie. Yes. I don't know if we need to go over that again. I think we already did talk about that, except for Kevin and Ellie in the past. Ellie is a great character. In like the five seconds and I the know, five right? minutes she's on screen, she has so much beauty and agency and just charm out the yin-yang. Like she's just such an interesting and good character and doing all the stereotypical boy things in the 40s and then... Yeah, it's just what we were saying. But I was, I was just going to add to that, that we see her in the very beginning of the movie, the kids talk, and then there's a musical montage for most of their growing up until after she has died. And we see her being a tomboy kid, and then we see her being... Uh, I like about her that she um, continues to be adventurous and interesting in the montage that we see, without having to, con without 
she's able to pick up and drop and move between gender uh, trappings mm, in, yes. in the bit that we see of her. She yeah. doesn't continue to be, you know, butch throughout the entire thing. There wouldn't be a problem with that, but it's nice that she can pick up and drop whatever she wants to, right? Mm-hmm. She's not, yeah, I agree. She's not following the stereotype or the anti-stereotype. Yeah. And like, yeah, in that she's a whole person and in that you can't forget that it's like the 60s and stuff. Like, you're not going to pretend like she's not a housewife or not. I don't know if she's actually a housewife, but a woman in the, a woman in the 60s. And so yeah. that is We do see her with a job. We do see her with a job. You're right. I forgot about that. Oh. Anyway, she, like, is an awesome character, even her tiny little bit. I have a problem to bring up with her, though, and it is this. There's a trope. Uh, Well, it's two things. Carl is the audientification character. That's partly because he is through the whole movie. But in that very beginning, we have Carl and Ellie, and they meet each other, and it's, we see, we are are him meeting her. Mm -hmm. Even though she's a child... I wouldn't say it's in a sexual way, but in a character development way, she is a character seen through a male gaze. Mm. She's the, she's a manic pixie dream girl. She's a, exactly, and she's a manic pixie dream girl in a specific way that comes up an awful lot. That he is shy and reserved, and he doesn't have to overcome his shyness because the the uh, eventual love interest, but the love interest for him comes to him makes the move, comes to him, is the initiator. He requires nothing from him. Mm -hmm. That's something that happens a lot in film. But I feel like they avoid that trapping as they continue by having her stay. If she had just been a one-off kid who, like, made this impact on him and then left forever, it would feel like that. But the fact that they then built this strong relationship wherein both of them were in it, wherein she wasn't this weird thing that was in his life the whole time. She was a regular whole person. And I I agree with you, actually. And I think that she is a manic pixie dream girl in some ways, but there is a very real sense in which a manic pixie eight-year-old is not the same thing as a manic pixie 20-year-old. Mm-hmm. Or And by the time she's 20, she seems like just a... A regular person. Yeah. She doesn't continue to be wacky. Yeah. Uh, And that's one of the many problems with the Manic Pixie Dream Girl as a trope is that they're infantilized. They behave like uninhibited children because they haven't been constrained by society. And no, she lives in society and she is much more real than that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a small problem, not a big one, but I think it is a small problem. Yeah. With her. All right. Is there anything else we want to talk about? I mean, I mean, you haven't even mentioned like the dogs and Doug and <laughs> anything. D- Doug is hilarious. He's one of my favorite animal characters in Pixar. He's I have just, just like, met you and I, just, I love you. He's just a dog. And I mean, that is exactly how you feel like a dog would talk. And they just nail it right on the head is I just so met good. you and I love you. I just like squirt the squirrel thing. It is called back several times that whole squirrel thing with the dogs, but it's, I feel like it's funny every time. My master made me this collar. He is a good and smart master, and he made me this collar so that I may talk. Squirrel! There's a lot of humor in it, despite, I mean, all we've said that is so serious. Of course, there's a lot of humor in it, and a lot of 
great moments. I love the moment where Russell is being dragged across the front of the blimp and squealing <laughs> the whole time. And it just lasts for so long, but it's funny the whole time. And it's it lasts for just the perfect amount of time. Yeah, we're, we're squeeing a little bit instead of taking it I seriously. Know, no. Talking about the comedy. I don't know. We could talk about the dogs if there's something... Yeah, profound to, profound say. to say. I'm not sure what I would say about the dogs. No, no. Particularly. Other than that, a squeaky voice is funny and a deep voice is the normal commanding voice is a bit, is very gendered. Yeah, because why is his high voice funny? Because it's effeminate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that means And all the dogs are male. Yeah, they sure are. Which, like, how do you make more dogs? I don't know. <laughs> Although that could also be... Uh, they could be female dogs, but they have male voices because Car- uh, Charles lives by himself and has a bunch of dogs, and the only person who he- who could make the voice is him. Yeah, that's a stretch. That's a bit of a tap dance. Bit of a bit of a tap dance. In any yep. case, is there anything more in terms of taking this movie very seriously that you wanted to? I think we're good. I think so. Is it good? It's so good. Is it seriously good? It's so good. <laughs> yeah, it's both. This movie it's both is good, good and good seriously good. good. I think it's more good than seriously good, mm-hmm. as often happens. There are gender issues in this movie. Yeah. Um, but it does, it has, in terms of race representation that we don't often see, and in terms of age, like that is, and you talk about isms. Ageism yeah. is one of the isms. Yeah. Uh and this is an old man who, like, I made a joke earlier, but uh, in a more profound way, like, this is one of the few movies I can ever think of, especially for kids that are, like, old people are people. Yeah. Uh, there may be, I mean, like, hey, old white men are important. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. But uh, still... There's something to... Oh, one one more uh, thing I wanted to talk about in terms of character design. I meant to say this earlier. I do have one more thing to say. And that is, you notice Carl and Russell are both so... Uh, their character design is so uh, creative and unique and memorable and distinctive. Mm-hmm. Think of the guys in suits who are demolishing Mm. Carl's house. They are interchangeable. Their faces are all exactly the same. Yeah, exactly. I do not believe that that is lazy character design. Mm -hmm. I believe that that is purposeful. Yeah. They are depersoned suits. They're also the Matrix, basically. I mean, they're the Matrix, but I think that there is... uh, yeah, they're impersonal suits. They're impersonal men in suits. And there's a, a two-part significance to that that I think we can dig into some some seriousness to. The one is the more you know someone, the more detailed and human they are. Mm-hmm. And this movie represents that literally. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times in cartoons, background characters get less detailed. But I don't think that's why in this no. movie. I think it's actually saying something about all the people you meet have the depth of backstory that Carl does. Right. And two is there is an anti-corporate uh, 
subtext in this movie distributed by the most powerful corporation in the universe. (laughs) True Um, story. So these men in suits who are demolishing the individual uh, is about, and they are depersonalized because they aren't individuals with individual mandates. They are representatives of a corporatization of the world that's ironing out the distinctiveness that an individual represents. I think that's a common uh, position that Disney hypocritically holds. Yeah, that's some serious hypocrite. Serious hypocrisy (laughs) from (laughs) Disney. Disney, And Pixar is not at this point exactly Disney. It is now when I said at this point. When Up was made, Pixar was not exactly Disney. Yeah, it was distributed by Disney always. Now it is. Now it is. And even if it's distributed by Disney, like that's a hypocritical stance for them to take. Yeah. But it is a stance that they're taking in this movie. Yeah. Those are the two other, the two okay. last digs at seriousness. <laughs> so is it good? Yes. yes. Is it seriously good? Yes. Yes. All right. All right. So that brings us to the end of this. Uh, where can people find us, Paul? You can find us on Twitter at WTScast. You, I'd love to hear your thoughts about Up and any other movies that make you cry in the first five minutes. Mm-hmm. If you think there's a better six minutes of film out there, I'd love to hear what you think it is. Absolutely. You can send us an email at waytoseriouslycast at gmail.com. And you can tell us if... Up doesn't make you cry because you are a robot. (laughs) (laughs) Find us on our webpage, goodstuff.fm slash WTS. And if you love us so much, why don't you give us a rating on iTunes or donate to our Patreon, patreon.com slash clockworkscast. Thanks for listening. I've been Paul Moffat. I've been Jan Moffat. And I'll... Life is the greatest adventure. Let's go up now. Podcasting <laughs> is itself an adventure. The adventure is out there. Want to move to Venezuela? Yeah. All right. <laughs> um.